0: Good morning. Greetings in the name of Jesus to each one who's here. As we continue to worship together this morning, we happy for your presence. First of all, I'd like to thank everyone for their interest and prayers in a little road trip my wife and I took last week and week before. We had 20 some hundred safe miles, 30 some hours on the road, we got to visit three different communities in person and travel through many others. We began by spending a little time with Irma Wanger in eastern Kentucky and that's a long story within itself how she serves there. Learned to drive towards the middle of the road there in the mountain. You don't want to get off the edge or it might be your last trip. There's been a lot of flooding down there in the past so some of the asphalts broke off and the ravines are quite deep uh, where the floodwaters went through. She's lived over the years and where she's worked and from there, we made our way to Arkansas and got to enjoy the Ozarks, along with the heat Sunday afternoon, uh, last Sunday, a week ago today. It was 104 there, the real field was 116. We got out of the vehicle and just felt it for a while. Thought that was kinda hot and got up next morning here in the motel and was talking to some other travelers and they said, well, they were traveling in from Texas and it had been consistently 110 out there. Someone told me later that maybe about a month they've had 110 degree weather in Texas. So got to experience that and then we made our way to uh, Alabama to visit Nate, well after we were in Arkansas we spent time there with Lester enjoyed that very much. And then made our way to Alabama and spent uh, two days with Nate and got to see where they live and experience South Alabama. Even went down to the, to the, uh, the ocean to the Gulf one evening. They're only about an hour from the Gulf and got to see the different prisons there. I wasn't certified, so we didn't go in, and then went to the uh, thrift store where Nate manages that. That's his job. He is in charge of the thrift business that supports the We Care Ministry, and then traveled there and visited the people in the headquarters and uh, got to visit with uh, Lloyd Hurst's granddaughter, Noreen Hurst. She's been there for 20-some years, some of her relatives, and uh, she's a receptionist there in the office. So made our way back home, so we had a very enjoyable trip. And I have a list of states, I think there's five states in the United States that I haven't visited yet, so if you want to move to one of those, I can tell you where they're at, and we'll have an excuse to come and visit you there. One's North Dakota, one's New Mexico, one's Rhode Island, and I forget where the other two are at, but maybe Alaska and Hawaii, but they're not in the continental, so. Yeah, thank you for your prayers. This morning, I'd like to begin our study in the book of Romans. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Before we begin, I have a little story to tell you. You'll understand by the end of the message how the story relates. I called this friend this week and asked his permission to share his story. It begins like this. He and his family went and bought a border collie pup off of someone and uh, brought it home and raised the pup there with the children. Turned out to be the best dog they ever had. It was a smart dog, intelligent dog. He's easy to train. He learned to get the cows in. He said they would just tell him to go out in the fields, a dairy farm, get the cows in. If a cow was laying down, the dog would look back at the master, and the master would say, up, and he'd get the cow up and bring it in. And, uh, so It was a great dog. But as time went on, there began to be a little bit of an issue with this dog. He began to go over and just visit the next door neighbor's farm more and more frequently and spend more and more time with the neighbors instead of being at home. Eventually, the dog just kind of packed up his bones and moved to the neighbor's farm. And he come back occasionally to visit at the home farm and... The man told me, he said, you know, when I meet up with my dog, he's genuinely happy to see me. I can tell. He's genuinely happy to see me, but he just won't stay at home. He moved to the neighbor's. And, uh, yeah, the dog comes home. He feeds him doggy bones and what have you. But in long until he goes back over and lives with the neighbor. See, the neighbor has a sheep farm. And the dog obviously decided he'd rather hang out with the sheep farmer than the dairy farmer. So that's how it works. So the dog lives on and Uh, The neighbor's happy to have the dog, and the other owner feels a little slighted, but that's just the way it is. And uh, the owner of that dog said, My dog seems genuinely happy to see me when we meet up, but he's not loyal to me anymore. He purchased that dog and trained that dog, put time into that dog, because he desired companionship, and assistance, and he had work for that dog to do. But the dog has chosen not to be loyal. Heard someone else's sheep instead of being at home. I'll read you some verses. You don't need to turn to these. Read a number of verses to you. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, and in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace." Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we also obtain an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ." James 1, 16 through 18, Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Are you following this, what all God has invested in us, seeking a return just like the gentleman who bought this border collie and trained him to be his companion and worker on the farm. Acts 20:28. 20, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6:19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So how must God feel when we appear genuinely happy to meet up with Him when He shows up and blesses us in our lives? But yet we prefer to to have a divided loyalty, a little bit like my friend's dog. He's genuinely happy when the owner gives him his doggy bones and blesses him and shows him love. But He has chosen to divide His loyalty and give most of it to someone else. How does God feel about that? Well, James 4, 4 tells us how God feels. He says, "...Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God." And now we have an illustration from marriage, the word adulterers and adulteresses. And God is saying, the pain that he feels through that experience would be expressed, we would, we would feel it best in our lives had our spouse abandoned us for someone else. So we see how serious God takes our commitment to Him. Now, that's a backdrop to help us understand the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1. Follow along. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, for your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at their length, I might have a prosperous journey, and by the will of God come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end, that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. And so, as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is a righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith." So we've considered the cost of our salvation, and the commitment to God on our behalf, the commitment that God has made on our behalf, and I hope that helps us understand the foundation of the first half of Romans chapter 1. The second half of Romans 1, which we'll get to in a future message, shows us what happens when we choose to live like my friend's dog and show our loyalty to Satan. The first half of Romans shows us God's call in our lives and our reasonable response that should flow out of our lives. Like Hebrews 12 tells us, it's our our reasonable response to give our lives as living sacrifices. And I've broken down these 17 verses into four if you're a note taker. Verse 1 is the call, verses 2 through 6 is the calls, verses 7 through 11 is the communion, and verses 12 through 17 is the constraint. So we'll begin with verse 1, which is the call. Paul never questions God's call on his life. I noticed that uh, the many times in the Scripture where Paul gives his testimony, several times in the book of Acts and then also in writing in the pastoral epistles, Paul never questioned God had a call on his life. And let's notice how Paul opens this up for us at different places in the Scripture. Here he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God. And then we go back to Acts chapter 9 and verses 3 through 6, and we find this. And as he journeyed and came near Damascus, suddenly there shined about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, Paul trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and shall be told thee what thou must do. The question that Paul asked, laying there on the ground, blinded by the light, and looking up and seeing nothing but darkness, was this, Lord, what will thou have me to do? That was the, that was the transformation moment in Saul of Tarsus' life. Lord, what will you have me to do? Have we asked that question as God speaks into our lives? Lord, what will you have me to do? And from that point on, God showed him plainly what he would have him to do. Verses 14 and 15 is the same chapter. And here's Ananias, and Ananias is resisting God when God said, Ananias, go down to the street called Straight And there's a man there, and he's praying. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias said, No, Lord, I've heard about this man. I know what he's doing. And he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, I like Ananias. The Lord told him what to do, and after he... Got confirmation is the right thing to do. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and put his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. First probably the first communication they ever had, and the first thing he said was, Brother Saul. He knew that God had called this man, and he was part of the followers of the way. So Paul never questioned God's call on his life. And we find it again in Acts 13, where he's giving his testimony again, verses two and three. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Another confirmation of God's call when the brethren laid their hands on them and sent them away as the call to go out into the mission field. So throughout Paul's life, God continued to confirm his call even through the suffering. And we notice how Paul is writing this now, I'm assuming, as an older man and looking back on his life, and he says, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And this word carries a lot of weight, a servant. It's a bondservant, literally a slave. One with a lifelong indebtedness. And that that thought comes out again in later verses, maybe verses 15 and 16 as we continue to develop this. Paul understood he had a lifelong indebtedness and a a requirement and a commitment from his life to do the will of God. And he knew that that he was a servant and that he was called to be a servant. The word called there simply means appointed by God. So I'm a bond slave, I'm a, I'm a, and I've been appointed by God. And what was he appointed to? He was appointed to be an apostle. I believe that if those of you can study this better than I can, that we get our word missile from the root, uh, from the word that would have been apostle. So an apostle here is an ambassador of the gospel, one who is sent, one who is officially commissioned of Christ and one to go out and to share, and, of course, one who actually seen Christ with his eyes. And Paul seen Christ as he was blinded by the light on the road to Damascus. So he was called, he was a bond servant. he was an apostle, and we notice now another key part in his call. He said that he was separated unto the gospel of God, or he was set apart. And separated here means to be set off or to be hemmed in by a boundary divinely separated for a purpose. There was no doubt in Apostle Paul's life after God had called him that he had a purpose in life that could not be deterred, could not be uh, divided or have uh, divided loyalties to. And the purpose of the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ is a life separated unto God, doing His will, following His purposes, and serving Him without reservation. So that is the call. Now we come back to uh, the the second verse, the second through sixth verse, and we have the cause. In order to have that type of a commitment, to have a life that is sold out, there needs to be a worthy cause. What is that worthy cause? That worthy cause is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which He promised before His prophets in the Holy Scripture. It's what people had been looking for for many years, and it was revealed in Jesus Christ. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So people looking at Jesus Christ would say, well, He's, he's a descendant of, of Mary and Joseph. He's, he's of the seed of David. But verse 4 clarifies that, "...and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead." So, that brings us then to, key, to verse 5. We've, we've recognized the cause, and the center of the cause is Jesus Christ and salvation through Him, the message of the gospel. And in verse 5 is the key verse to the Christian life and ministry. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. You see the, the progression here. Grace... We cannot serve God without the grace of God in our lives. There's apostleship. It's the calling. It's the, it's the being sent. It's the relationship with Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's serving Him. And then we have obedience to faith, or being calling others to, in, to obedience of faith, while we live in obedience of faith. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Paul never lost sight of the fact that outside of the grace of God, he could not be who he was in Christ. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Paul said, Christ didn't bestow his grace on me in vain. I didn't just spurn it and go live with a neighbor. I put it to work in my life. But I labored more abundantly than they all. He's saying, I worked harder than all the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. And I had never seen that verse in that light before, before I was studying for this message. Paul said, I've put my all into it. I've probably labored harder for the gospel than anyone else, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God working in my life that compelled and propelled and kept him serving and going through all of this. Which helped me understand better than these verses from Titus 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. What is the grace of God doing in our lives as Christians? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the grace of God is here to free us from the bondage of sin, to help us to live out the call and the apostleship, and to help us uh, fulfill that calling and that separation that God has called us into. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is the outlook of one who's serving as Paul served? We're always looking for the return of the Lord, or His call to call us home through death, whatever it is. That's the focus of our lives. The one who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purifying himself a peculiar people, and that is a purchased people that was purchased by his own blood, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. Paul is saying to this young Titus, he's saying, young man, serve in this way and don't let it bother you if others don't understand what it means to be sold out for God continue to serve with that fervency and with that passion and with that power. You see, the grace of God is the foundation and the force behind a righteous life. And I'll repeat that. The grace of God is the foundation and the force behind a righteous life. So we have grace. We have apostleship. We have obedience. We have being equipped to share the gospel. And we must, we must possess these attributes in order to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, he says, And you, among you, are they also the called of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, those he's writing to in Rome, he said, You also are those who are called to belong to Christ and to serve Him with that power and that fervency and that passion and that singleness of heart and mind and life. So that is the cause. And in verses 7 through 13 is the communion or the koinonia or the fellowship of the saints. Verse 7. And all that be in Rome, beloved of God, and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are, we're down through the passage a little ways, and he, he greets them again and lets them know uh, his, his koinonia, his communion with them, the fellowship of Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So he says they are called to be saints. Have you ever wondered what that means? Well, the word here means you're called to be one who is morally blameless. And we find that in contrast to the second half of Romans 1, where God has given people over to reprobate minds because they have chosen not to be morally blameless. So he says we are called to be saints, ones who are morally blameless before God. And we notice that he's also called to, to live in grace and apostleship, or let me back up. I'm in the wrong verse. Grace and peace is called to live in grace and peace. And I've studied that. I came to this conclusion, and I've, I welcome your input on that. Do grace and peace not travel together? Are grace and peace traveling companions in our lives? Because they come from the same source. Grace comes from God, and peace comes from God. Are they not traveling companions in the Christian's spiritual journey? And then we come to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It's a witness. What other foundation can he share than the foundation of godly fellowship that are in Christ, we have faith together, and it's a faith that draws attention to those who observe. He said, your faith is spoken of throughout all the world. He said something very similar to the believers at Thessalonica, and he commended them for having a witness of faith that spoke to those who observed. And I covet that for our lives, especially for my life. Do we have a faith that speaks volumes to those who simply observe our lives, that it's spoken of by those who witness? Then we come to verse For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. We discussed that a bit, or it was discussed a bit in our Sunday school uh, class period this morning. The importance of praying for each other. We notice here in verses 7 through 13, what I've called the communion of, of saints section, that we are called to love each other, we are called to operate in grace and peace, and we are called to pray for each other. And we noticed that his prayer was, one of his prayers was, that he might have opportunity to visit them and to be in their presence and to impart to them spiritual gifts, to challenge them, to edify them, to build them up, and to the end that they might be established or be made strong in the faith. And isn't that truly the purpose for our fellowship as saints, one another, to be together and to challenge each other and to build each other up and to establish each other in the faith and strengthen each other that we can live in victory both, both singularly and collectively as we walk together in Christ. Built up in the faith. Verse 12, and then he said that I may be comforted together with you and by mutual faith both of you and So he's saying, not only do I want to be in your presence to build you up, but I know if I'm able to come into your presence, you can build me up and we'll be edified together in the gospel and comforted together. And in verse 13, he's saying again how he tried so hard to come see them. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come into you, but was led hitherto that I might have some fruit among you, even as among the other Gentiles." So he kept reminding them that the reason that he had not been with them in presence was not because he didn't desire to be there. It wasn't because he wasn't praying for them. It wasn't because he didn't care. It was just that the Lord had not opened the door for him to be there. But he really wanted to be there and to inspire fruit-bearing Christian activity in their lives and experience the same in return in his life. And that brings us into the third point, which I've called the constraint. What is a constraint? A constraint is an irresistible force that compels one to action. And it comes with the idea of restraint and confinement. To me, it's one of the most fascinating words uh, in the New Testament. It's something that propels us forwards, but it also hems us in and sets the boundaries of our lives. We find it here in these verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. So Christ's love in our lives does this. It, it hems us in, it propels us forwards, and this is how we live it out. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So, Christ compels us. and your translations you use the word compel instead of constraineth. But it's, it's a compelling force that the love of Christ comes into our lives, and we understand that he died to serve others, we too, then, should live as those who have died to self and live to serve others. That's the constraint. That's the the compelling force. And we notice how that, that he says he felt compelled to live this out in his life in verse 14. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Have any of you ever been in debt? It comes with a little bit of, uh, how do you say it, it just kind of weighs on you, it's there. The alarm clock goes off in the morning and you may not feel like getting out of bed, but then your mind, oh yeah, there's bills to pay. And I signed that dotted line that said, if I don't make these payments, it's going to be an auction at my farm. It's somewhat of a compelling force, right? You get up and you go. You have an obligation to meet. Paul said, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. And we've already said he understood it was a lifelong uh, commitment that he could never pay off. That's how we are as we walk with Christ. As God's lust is poured into our lives through conversion and the Spirit takes up, takes up its residence in our lives and we are compelled and we are led and we are blessed and we are comforted and we are challenged and chastened and edified and all of those things, we're free, yes, we're free from the effects of sin and the eternal death that goes with sin, but we're forever indebted, as long as we're in this life. We're indebted to serve and to share with others what we have experienced. Paul was a debtor, he had an obligation. So how do we service our debt? I remember when I was younger, before I experienced debt, I thought that was a funny saying. I'd heard people talk about servicing their debt. And I thought, well, don't service your debt, just pay it off. Well, I found out what it means to service your debt. You make your payments, you keep it current. You're servicing your debt. So, how do we service our debt, our indebtedness, through our Christian experience? You see, when we make our payments to the bank or to Uncle So and so or whoever it is, we make the principal payment and then we pay the interest. And that interest is that reminder of we're paying that back debt back there and it's accumulating interest and we need to keep working at it to keep working it down. Okay? So, we financially we pay our debts looking back, but in the Christian experience we pay our debt looking forward. We can't necessarily go back to our spiritual forebears and repay them for the debt we owe them for what they've handed to us. We can't necessarily go back to the cross and attempt to repay Christ for what he's done for us, but we can service our indebtedness by serving this present age, which we're going to sing about here in a little bit, by serving this present age and looking forward and sharing the gospel with those who have come behind us. Does that make any sense to you? Paul said, I'm indebted. And who's he indebted to? Both to the Greeks and the barbarians. He said, I'm indebted to everyone, everyone I meet in verse 15 so as much as in me i'm ready to preach the gospel also to you preach the gospel to you that are rome also he said wherever i go whoever i meet whatever their background greeks barbarians whoever whatever i have an obligation to share with them this gospel message of salvation through jesus christ in grace and apostleship and everything that goes with it he said, I'm obligated to do that. I'm, I'm indebted to do that. As long as God gives me breath, that is what I must do. He was driven to inspire, to convict, and to edify, and to share the love of Christ and the plan of salvation. But that can only be done out of one context, and verse 16 tells us what that is. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Are we going to share publicly with all those we meet something that we're ashamed of? Mark eight thirty-eight. Jesus said, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall also the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in his glory of his Father and the holy angels. If we're ashamed of the gospel message and do not share it, We are keeping others from the news of Jesus Christ that could keep them from spending eternity in hell. See, we're servicing our debt. He said, I'm indebted to everyone I meet because without Christ, they will go to the grave with no hope for eternity. And Paul said, my life is about sharing the gospel. And I'm not ashamed, whatever it costs me. And I challenge us in that. Are we not ashamed? Can we say the same thing? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I'm talking, I'm talking mainly here about verbally sharing Christ and showing Christ. Like he said here, he, he thanks God that their faith is spoken of throughout the world. Obviously, their lives backed up their profession. But it's more than that. Am I tempted to compromise just a little to fit in with those around me when I'm in a setting that's different than my fellow believers? Am I tempted to compromise and just kind of fit in rather than to stand up and to stand out? Jesus said, if you do that, I'll be ashamed of you when I come back. And we don't want that to happen. May this be our testimony that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know it is the power of salvation to everyone, the Jews, the Greeks, everyone, everyone that we're indebted to. God has called us to share and to serve. And then we come to the final verse, verse 17. For there is a righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is is written, the just shall live by faith. Faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. It's interesting, as I studied these verses and read comments from others who who have wrestled with this verse, there's different ideas on what it means to live from faith to faith. But I like this, Hebrews 10.38, I believe, tells us, and it fits in with the preceding verses. Hebrews 10.38 says, And now the just shall live by faith. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So living by faith, the righteousness of God that is reeled from faith to faith, is daily walking step by step in faith. Oftentimes we may not understand where we're going, or exactly where God is leading us or why He's leading us in a certain way. But as we take that next step and that next step and that next step in faith, God reveals to us His will and we reveal to God that we trust Him and are walking from faith to faith. And therein is the righteousness of God revealed that we're living by faith. And we'll get into faith versus law a lot more in the latter part of the chapters of Romans. But it is written... The just shall live by faith. What does that mean in your life? How are we servicing our debt in faith? As we live by faith, there will be no turning back. We will not be ashamed ashamed to stand out and be different than the unsaved around us. Rather, we will share with them the plan of salvation, even if it means rejection. Open your Zion's praises with me, please, to 747. Seven forty-seven. Song kept running through my mind this morning, especially the second verse, but the rest of them as well. And we notice this song is a prayer. We will sing this momentarily. We want to sing it as a prayer, and notice the commitment that we will be making—a charge God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. That's personal. Now, servicing our debt. The second, to serve the present age my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. How do we go about doing it? Three, arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live, and oh, thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict... And then I thought a lot about the second half of Romans 1 in the fourth verse. Help me to watch and pray and on thyself rely, Assured, if my trust, if I my trust betray, I shall. For it. let's sing together.